Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1, page 707 in the church Bibles. We're going to try to finish out um, the opening chapter this morning. And in just a second or two, I'm going to begin reading from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleaning, cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Amen. You recall that Jesus had a full day of ministry And here we are in verse 35, early in the morning the next day. Let's pray together. Father, it is a privilege to worship you. It is a privilege to be able to sing in the power of the Holy Spirit the songs that we sing, especially the, the final song, because it is so true. You are a good, good father. You don't deserve it. We're sure thankful for it. Now, Father, will you please help us as we open your word? Our interest is to see you glorified and to see um, our lives more stabilized, to see our lives transform, and to beckon us to live in light of that which matters most. So then, God, in your mercy, grant to us capacity and humility and teachability and wisdom. Help me to speak this morning. Give us all that we need And Father, for the praise of your glorious name, win everyone here to yourself. Everyone, Father, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Theologian Robert Louis Dabney was told by his doctor that his condition was terminal and he was going to soon die. Because of this, as you can imagine, he became afraid. He was afraid, he said, that his faith would fail And he was just going to collapse under the weight of facing his uh, impending death and the painful decline which typically comes with such a thing. So he wrote a letter to a friend, Clement Vaughn, who happened to be a pastor. In the letter, Robert Dabney just laid his soul bare and, and said in not so many words that I am having so much trouble believing in Jesus and believing he's going to see me through to my death. So I'm terrified. Vaughn wrote back to Dabney and in his letter asked him this question. He said, what what would a traveler do if he came to this excessively high chasm over which a bridge extended 
And he knew that he needed to get on that bridge to cross. And so Vaughn writes, what does he do to breed confidence in the breed he would cross? Well, he looks at the bridge. He gets down. He examines it. He doesn't turn his thoughts to himself to see if he has confidence in the bridge. No, he looks at the bridge. If his examination gives him confidence in the bridge and yet he wants more, how does his faith grow? Why, in the same way. So he goes on and continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, remember they were friends. My dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while and you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of our master Jesus' power. Think of his love. Think how interested he is in the soul that searches for him and will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he's done, his work. That blood of his is mightier than all the sins of all sinners that ever lived. Don't you think it will master yours? We're all the same here from the theologian to the plowboy. We're all going to meet death and gospel comfort is our only remedy. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence in Christ and all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. I've been praying that God will quiet your pains as you advance and support you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. Goodbye. God be with you. Think of the bridge. It's good. Now, by dent of principle, that's exactly what Mark is doing when he wrote out this gospel. He's writing the gospel. If your Bible's open, you'll see this verse 1 of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's showing every one of his readers the personal fitness of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to defeat death, and to one day to bring the world and his people back to the way they were meant to be. And of course, the key to all this is certainly not us. It's Jesus. And of course, his suffering and death on the cross and his mighty resurrection. Therefore, Mark is in essence telling his readers what Vaughn was telling Dabney. You just look at that bridge. You go on. You look at Jesus. Look how compassionate he is. Look how, look how powerful. Look at his deeds. Look how, look how he exercises his deeds. And look how he will suffer for your sins. Look how he is absolutely obedient to the Father no matter where the Father leads him. And look how he stays on message for our sake. And he knows what his primary mission is. It's a preaching mission. He's going to preach himself to the cross. You look at him. That's your substitute. That's your savior. That's your king. And as king, he even expresses what many kings and what many people, frankly, are unwilling to express. Verse 35, he expresses dependence. So Jesus finds himself, after an awesome day of ministry, the need to get up, pre-dawn to go to a lonely place and pray to his father. Now, as you think about that, there's no surprise in my mind. Later on, Mark will write chapter 7, verse 37 of Jesus. He says, the people will say, he has done everything well. Yes, he has. Yes, he does. Yes, he always will. Just look at him. Just look at him. Three points. First point this morning, let's move on. Now, if your Bible's open, you'll see the disciples were not really looking at Jesus, were they? No, they were really looking at the crowds. 
Consequently, after Jesus' awesome day of ministry, we find numbers were strong, interest was high, and news about him was spreading, giving every indication, verses 36 and 37, that in the minds of the disciples, this was the place to be, Capernaum. And they needed to stay there a while, kind of put down stakes, because everything's starting out great. And the inference here is the disciples are basically telling Jesus, Jesus, we need to build on this, and we need to see how far things can go here. So let's stay a while. And they are so intent on that that you can't really see it in the English, but it's there in the Greek that the disciples were actually kind of reprimanding Jesus, expressing their disapproval of his actions. It was as if when they found him so far away, now this is verses 36 and 7, they found him far away, they found him praying, they said, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're, you're way out here doing this and everyone's looking for you? I mean, it's happening, Jesus, the crowds, the people, the popularity, you know, hello, let's get back and let's get back right now. Now, the first thing you should say is, wow, imagine that the disciples are only a few day on, days on the job and they're ready to call out the shots. And Jesus then no doubt surprises the disciples because he tells them, despite all this awesomeness and despite all this popularity, we need to move on. Verse 38, we find Jesus then was not about to measure his progress on the basis of numbers. That's what he says in verse 38. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So Jesus, as you see, is very, very clear on why it is he has come. And you know, we know from other places in the gospel that Jesus understood what was in the hearts of men and women. He knew that there, just like here, people can so easily, easily be attracted to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. So it's not so much the forgiveness of sins as what they can get out of him. So there's the hope of healing. There's a hope of a life of glory, of stability, a life of material gain or of leisure. All things which are temporal, passing away. Jesus understands also how easy it would be for the crowds to view him simply as a miracle man. Okay, so Jesus could take away their pain. He could take away their disease. And you know what? That's all you really need. Pain-free life, disease-free life, everything else is good. Jesus also understood that people, could, people then could easily view him as Mr. Fix-It, right? So all Jesus has to do is he waves his hands over your issues, your troubles, and presto, they're gone. Now you go out there and live a great life. He also understood it was possible that because he had so much compassion for these people that he could help them and he did help them, that he did take away their pain, and he did take away their disease, yet he knew that it was possible because it happened in Capernaum. He could do all that stuff, all those good deeds, without people ever coming to realize why he actually came and realizing why they actually need him as a savior, not as a healer. Now, I want you to see Jesus was happy to do what he did here. You can't miss that. It revealed the extent of his power. It revealed the extent of his kingship. It revealed that he was compassionate and was good towards people. And yet, even as he exercises his power and compassion in the healing ministry, that in and of itself was not the purpose of his coming. That was not what mattered most to Jesus. 
So he didn't come as a miracle worker. He didn't come to heal as many people as possible because clearly Jesus did not heal everyone. Why did he come? Verse 15, if your Bible is open. He came proclaiming, preaching, the time has come, the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news. He came for the gospel. John Calvin says it best when he said Jesus' miracles were appendages to the word and that relationship is not to be reversed. We have a quote that we throw around here a lot. The saving of one soul is an event of more importance than the temporary removal of evil and disease from an entire village. In other words, the central mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a miracle-working mission. It wasn't even a good deeds mission. It was a preaching mission to preach himself and to preach the cross to as many people as possible. Now, as you think about that, there's at least three things that we can glean from this. Let me just give you these. Number one, the lesson here is Jesus is going to say, look, popularity is not what moves me. A crowd is fine because people matter and they need to hear me. But I didn't come to be popular. I came to tell people that they need to turn from their sin. They need to turn to me. They need to believe me because I am their only hope in life and in death. So guys, uh, disciples, verse 38b, let's move on. We need to go to other places and tell them to repent and believe that's what matters most. That's why I came. First lesson. Second lesson. It's a reminder to us that heaven is in agreement with the scriptures. That God has already given us his pattern for his ministry. So it's so possible that we can get to this story, blow past it, and never make any kind of sensible application in our own time and our own place. So essentially think, okay, this is century 21. We're much more advanced. We're not going to do what they did in century 1. Just like the disciples, kind of, right? Jesus, we need to get out of here, of this prayer thing. We need to go because people are there and just come on. It's also a reminder that it's very possible to follow only the logic of the crowds, which say where the popularity is, that must be where truth is, and by golly, that must be where God is. It's also a reminder that the task and privilege that is entrusted to the preacher is ultimately the task of proclaiming the gospel. So no matter, no, no matter what happens and no matter who's behind the box, the gospel is the standard. That's how we're called and that's how we will be judged. So what I want you to do is you ought not to confuse crowds gathering and healing crusades and Christian events taking place with the ongoing work of the gospel because it may not be. It may not be. That takes us to our third lesson. Because as Jesus, Jesus kind of confronts the muddle-headedness of the disciples and the crowds, he's telling them, look, I want you to understand something. That the material and bodily benefits were not, and they are not, the things that matter most. Now, we know that they seem like it, but they are not it. Because when Jesus preaches the gospel, he challenges everyone's preoccupation with time, and he shows them and he points them to eternity. He challenges their preoccupation with the material and the seen bodily things with the invisible and the unseen. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say 2 Corinthians 4, things that are seen, they are temporary. Things that are unseen, they are forever. Now, the Apostle Paul, one time he wrote to the Philippian church, 
He told them, I desire to depart from this world and be with Christ, which is far better. How could he say that? Well, apparently, Paul's been studying the bridge. He's been spending a lot of time thinking about, pondering Jesus. I've told you this before. It bears repeating that a long time ago, I was told by a trusted friend, look, on the eve of your wedding anniversary, make sure that you spend about 30 minutes thinking about your wife, meditating on her, and then when you get done doing that, write her a love letter. And then the next day, give it to her. Now, I think that's Paul. I think Paul was doing that in spades with Jesus Christ because although his relationship with Jesus Christ brought him suffering that would break a thousand hearts, He's like, I'd rather be with Jesus than to be with you. And you see, because of that kind of mindset and reverse, the crowds rush to Jesus. They do not rush to him ready to repent and believe, but they understandably, they rush to him with personal and bodily concerns and they hold out their hands, if you would, and say, can you please fix this? That's why we're here. We need you to fix this. And that'll come out very clearly beginning in verse 40. Let's move on. That's our first point. Jesus is like, we need to go. I need to preach to other places. That's why I came. That's what matters most. Second point, I am willing. So you'll notice that this man's condition in verse 40 is just given right off the bat. Mark just throws us right in there. Verse 40, a man with leprosy. And the reason why he writes so matter of fact is essentially because the man's life was defined by this disease. In other words, every time somebody thought about him or knew him, the disease came to mind. Now, there's a gentleman named R.K. Harrison. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he can help us when we think about leprosy. This is what he says. A diagnosis of leprosy was as much as a death sentence to the ancient Israelites as news about an advanced stage four cancerous malignancy would be to a modern patient. Once a man was branded as a leper, He had to adopt the posture of a mourner by tearing his clothes, allowing his hair to become unkept, covering his beard or mustache, and crying out at the approach of others, unclean, unclean. He had to live outside the camp in lonely places or perhaps in the company of other lepers. But his existence was nothing more than a living death. Unless there was a quick remission of the disease, the victim of clinical leprosy knew that his condition would be a lengthy duration And its repulsive nature, right, its flesh oozing and things of that nature, would prohibit meaningful contact with society. Most of all, the leper would be cut off from the spiritual fellowship with God's people. And in a very real sense, they would be without hope and without God in the world. Now, if you listen to that, that was the man's condition. And as you can see or hear, it was awful. And the seriousness of the condition is matched then by the fervency of his approach. Look at your Bibles, verse 40. Look at verb after verb, which follows. The leper came to Jesus Christ. He begged Jesus Christ. It's not in the NIV, but it's in the the Greek. He fell to his knees before Jesus Christ. So you get that. He came to Christ, begged Christ, fell to his knees, and he puts himself within arm's reach of Jesus Christ, which you were not supposed to do, right, if you were a leper. You were supposed to stay away as far as possible and you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so everybody would know to go away. Which gives indication to us of how badly this guy wanted to meet Jesus. So apparently he had heard about Jesus and his wonder-working power. 
And now here Jesus was. So the leper came to Jesus. He begged Jesus. He fell to his knees and began to plead with Jesus. So can I ask you a question? Because it's the first question that popped in my mind as I began working through this verse. Have you ever in your whole life been put in the position where you had to beg someone for something on your knees? I thought it through for myself and there has never, as of yet, been a time when I had to do that. However, this man is so absolutely convinced that Jesus can restore him to the way that he used to be that all convention is thrown out the window on his knees, verse 40b, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's the guy's condition. Now notice the compassion of Jesus. Verse 41, filled with compassion. It's actually one long Greek word. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son when the father sees his son coming from afar and the father is is filled with compassion. So what Mark wants us to know is there's not one part of Jesus' psyche, not one part of his emotions, there's not one part of his soul, his uh, cognitive abilities, there's not one part of Jesus and his total person which is not filled to overflowing with compassion for this man. There's not one part of Jesus does not want to fix this guy's distress immediately, to get rid of the disease immediately. So if it's true that what we're filled with inside eventually will come out, so we're filled with joy, we'll have joy, it'll just kind of spill out. If we have a lot of hate, hate will spill out, whatever it is. Jesus was filled with compassion for this man and it just spilled out immediately. Verse 41b, Jesus does the indoable. He does what Rabbi said not to do and he touches the man. In fact, he reaches out to touch him. And when Jesus did that, he became ceremonially unclean. He defied ceremonial law. The law of love, apparently to Jesus, is stronger than the ceremonial law. And we know that Jesus needed only to speak and the man could have been healed. But Jesus chooses to reach out and touch the man and heal him. So I had another question this week. I wonder who was the last person to touch this man before his illness. Was it his wife, his kids, his parents? Who was it? I also wonder how long had it been since this man was touched by another human being other than a leper. I also wondered if he was married... Forgive me, but I also wondered if he was married, when, when was the last time he was romantically touched by his wife? I equally wondered, do we understand how important it was for Jesus to touch this man? Because in a common sense, beyond the medicinal benefits of human touch, There's psychological benefits as well. Uh, Professor uh, Dacker Keltner, he's professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. He gave a lecture not too long ago on the need and power of touch. He quotes Michelangelo who said, to touch is to give life. 
And he said that human touch strengthens our immune system. So it builds hemoglobins in us, which, of course, uh, increases our ability to uh, fight off disease. So we need to be touched. He tells an occasion uh, of days gone by where babies who were placed in orphanages, they had food, they had clothing, they had a climate-controlled environment, but they would still die to the rate of 70 to 80% until the caretakers were told, you guys, hold the babies. Hold them many times throughout the day. Touch them frequently. Caress them or they're going to die. And so Jesus, who does everything well, goes beyond words and he reaches out and he touches the man and he says, be clean, verse 42. Immediately, uthos is the Greek word. The man is clean. The leprosy is gone. And so what we find here is that Jesus breaks with ceremonial law And what he does essentially is get down into this man's circumstances because, again, this is a picture of the gospel. It's the same way where Jesus went to the cross and he took on our sin. And as he's hanging there, he's suffering with the fallout of our sin. He identifies us, himself with us, and he becomes sin for us. Just like Jesus takes this man's disease, he becomes unclean. He touches the man and instantly the man goes from sick to well, just like instantly a follower of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, they go from sinner to saint. Instantly. No waiting around. Okay, so the man's condition was that he was a leper. The compassion of Jesus is that the man is no longer a leper. But you'll notice in verse 43, there is a directive given by Jesus. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away with the strong warning, do not tell anyone about this, not a soul. Okay, so if you're with me, guys, okay, look, let's, let's move on. We're going to leave Compertium. I didn't come as a healing ministry. No, I've come to preach the gospel. But point number two, I'm still willing to heal people. That's without question. Final point, but we're going to need you to be quiet because that's exactly what Jesus tells the man with strong intent. intent. Tell no one And simply go show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices Moses said to so that you can be ceremonial clean as a testimony to what has taken place. In other words, Jesus is telling this man, just go do the right thing. Go do what's required. But don't do anything showy. I don't want you to shout it from the rooftops about this healing. Now, when I was growing up, I grew up in the South. And in the South, it was very, very popular. In, in, um, they would call them homecomings, crusades. Uh, they would even call them revivals, which was never understood. But anyway, they would do this thing where the, the group would be singing a song. Here's one of the songs they would sing. Look what the Lord has done. Look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me just in time. And then the music would go down. And then somebody would get up and say, I just want to tell everybody what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me. I was sick with this and I didn't have that. And I'm, by golly, he did it for me. Then the music would get back up and they would say, look what the Lord has done. Look what the Lord, the kind of thing you see on TV. And then the music would go back down and the guy would get up, somebody else. I want to tell everybody what the Lord did for me. And then they would give testimony of a miracle or something uh, great happening. Now, what I want to tell you about that is despite the fact that those things happen and still happen, Based on this account of Mark's gospel, I'm not quite sure that Jesus would like that kind of thing. I'm not sure. And the irony here is Jesus, having ignored the ceremonial law, is now telling the man to keep the law. 
Because as the man obeys the law, and as he shows himself to the priest, there's going to be an expression of gratitude taking place from the man. There's going to be evidence to the priest. And remember, they were kind of the watchers over the health of society. And the evidence of the healing as well would say, look what the ministry of Jesus is doing. That's verse 44, because some commentators say there's a little bit more going on than just the public witness, because maybe some of the people didn't like Jesus. And so this healing is going to make them have to rethink Jesus. And so by going to the priest, it was simply a way to reintroduce this man into the society quietly. Go through the proper procedures of of reintroduction. Jesus is being very pragmatic here. I know I healed the man completely, so that's not in doubt. But we're going to reintroduce this guy back into the society the right way and obedience to the law of Moses so the community can be stabilized. Okay, now, if you're still with me, you would think that after all that Jesus had done for the man, that the man would obey Jesus, verse 44, and not tell anyone anything. You would think that. But I guess, you know, on one level, we can't be too hard on the man. I mean, what what had taken place was a big deal. I can't say for sure that I would do exactly uh, or would, would not do exactly what the man did. But no matter, he was told sternly by his healer to be quiet. And remember, Jesus does everything well. Be quiet. Tell the priest, yes, do what you need to do there. But tell no one anything. The man disobeys, verse 45. He told everyone. And as a result of this, now please pay attention, as a result of this, as a result of the man's disobedience, the ministry of Jesus was hindered in this Galilean region. That's what the text says there in verse 45. Because of this man's disobedience to Jesus, it had an impact on what Jesus was doing and the roles now were essentially reversed, right? Because as this man, who up till then had to live alone in isolation, now he's no longer alone and he can talk freely. He's spreading the news. That's verse 44 of what happened. But by golly, it's not the evangelion. It's not the good news. It's not pure gospel. All he's saying is that he was sick and Jesus healed him. And now it's Jesus, verse 45, who can no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, which sounds a lot like me, like Jesus kind of sort of had to live a life of a leper while he was there. Now I want you to hear that. The roles are now reversed. The man who had lived a lonely, isolated life because of his leprosy, having been healed by Jesus, having disobeyed Jesus, Commanded by Jesus, keep this on the down low, did not. And as a result, now Jesus' ministry is hindered and he's driven to lonely places. Does anybody want to say that's not fair? How does something so wonderful happen and then Jesus has to be driven away? Right? So the news is getting out about Jesus, but it's not the good news, it's not the gospel. So the one who should be talking to the crowds, Jesus, he cannot, not as easily. And the one who is told to tell no one anything, does. And the ministry of Jesus is not helped at all by this man's testimony. Now you've got to think through that. I mean, let's think this out. Because it's far too important not to. Earlier in verse 36, we said, Jesus, who went to a lonely place to pray, fine, 
is now told by the disciples, come out of that lonely place and let's get this party started. People are loving you. And come on, let's go. But Jesus understands that they're not actually loving him, but rather loving what he could do for them by way of miracles. Remember, there's no sign of anybody being converted in Capernaum. So he says, I didn't come to the disciples. I didn't come so much so that I, so that I could heal people. I came to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in my name. That's what matters most. So again, he knew how easily miracles can be misunderstood and become the main thing because no one wants to feel pain and no one wants to suffer. And surely Jesus knew how easily feelings could get hurt. I mean, Jesus did not heal everybody in the crowds. I mean, if I was in the crowds and Jesus didn't heal me, I'd be like, what, what happened? Why didn't I get healed? He knew miracles can gather crowds, but so can a circus. And he knew that people's interests would not lie in humility and repentance to Jesus, but kind of a, a refined religious lust for what Jesus could do for him then. He's here now. We better take advantage of this. He also knew as well, everywhere he went, people misunderstood his mission. And they were looking for Superman to save them from Rome and make Israel great again. But they were not looking for a servant who would have to suffer, who would die in order to offer them deliverance from their sins. And because of this, because Jesus knew this, we have this strongly spoken warning to the man, not a word to anyone. Zip it. And this is what is called the messianic secret. And this, in the mind of Christ, makes complete sense. Because he understands that the people will get the intent of his mission all wrong. And that which matters most, the preaching of the gospel, which will provide people to believe and repent, will fall into the background. And here comes the traveling miracle roadshow. Because that's what people really like and need. And loved ones, if you have paid attention to Christianity in the West for the past 60 or 70 years, what's happening here is in large measure is what has happened here. I mean, you go back to the 50s and 60s. You remember the, the miracle crusades and the miracle revivals that started in the 50s? And you get this much of the miracles. I mean, when you watch it on TV, it's this much of the miracles. And at the end, oh yeah, just in case, forgive, Jesus needs to forgive you for your sins. And if you want to become a Christian, at the very end of the show, we'll make you become a Christian. You can become a Christian. What I'm willing to say, despite that popularity, despite the fact that it did happen, based on what we find here, I'm not sure it should have happened. Jesus, in his great compassion, does bring temporal good to people. A healing. Some kind of help. But sometimes people grab on that and they say, that's it. That's what this is all about. That is what will get the people flocking to Jesus. The smart ones say that, right? Not really the smart ones. The ones who think they're smart. And... and we need just spectacular because the spectacular, that's what get people interested in Jesus. Now, do you remember, do you remember the third temptation of the evil one to Jesus? Do you remember what it was? 
If you don't, maybe you can go home and find out today. But let me just tell you what it is. The evil one told Jesus, get to the high place. Take a big leap and watch the angels come. Everybody will see. It'll be so spectacular. Wow. And Jesus would say, okay, yeah, but, but those kind of things, they don't bring conversion. They might bring crowds, as happened in Capernaum, but they will not bring conversion. And actually, they can hinder the progress of the gospel and not help it. So the people flock to Jesus. They put up with the gospel message to get to the good stuff for the temporal things, to get to bodily comfort and bodily healing and ease. And as the decades move along from the 50s, it's more than that. It's more like you get to Jesus. He can make you a super great athlete and he can make it so that you have financial freedom. Remember in the 80s and 90s, right? You do this and you can have it and you can, you can be set for life. Jesus will help you become debt free and business. Oh boy, he can help you there in marriage. Holy buckets. He's great at that. Do you want heaven on earth now? And you see, we would ruin it all if not for the great mercy of God. So although Jesus is isolated, verse 45, this people still come to him from everywhere. We're not told why they come, but they still do come. John Calvin again, he says, Jesus wishes them more eager for the word than for signs. So what I want you to see in all this uh, strongly worded instruction to the healed man, a silence about this, silence. Jesus knew that the thirst for the spectacular is a never satisfied thirst in the human heart and the miracles then would overtake the message. Therefore, he tells the man, say nothing about this healing. There's also a quote that comes to mind here that says, what you save a person with is what you save a person to. Hence, when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, the larger the crowds in the ministry of Jesus, the harder his message was to them. And he would tell them, you cannot come to me so I can give you what you want. But you're welcome to come to me so I can give you what you need. Because this, all this is temporal. And Jesus is aiming for the eternal. He's aiming for souls converted. And that matters most. Now let me leave by saying this. Jesus has tremendous compassion on people. He has tremendous pity. pity. He's still healing people. That's still taking place. But I want you to see the tension here. He's got to show himself as the Messiah, the clear, truthful way. But at the same time, he has so much compassion for people that he still keeps on healing. And if you forgive me, it almost feels like Jesus is so human here because the tension is real. It's like, okay, I don't want them to suffer, but they need to hear about me. They need to hear the message. And so like most of us, Jesus has to live with the fallout and the tension of that. Hence verse 45, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed out in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Hmm. Jesus doesn't come off looking like he's in charge, does he? The guy he heals doesn't listen to him. His brand new disciples, 
They think they know better than him. And yet this is our king. This is the one who does everything well. This is the one who cares far more about our souls than he does about our bodily ease. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the ministry of Jesus and how he held the line. Because frankly, if he didn't do what he did, we would not be here. We would have, have no one to sing to, no one to serve, have no hope in our lives. But Jesus, you did everything well. And even in the disobedience of humanity, you stayed on the line. You weren't moved by anything except your Father's will and your great love for us. And so, mindful of our weaknesses, we pray that we will come to love and honor and genuinely appreciate your righteousness through the cross and put life in order under that heading. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who are with you both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.